So if we could, let's uh, open with a word of prayer, please. Our Father, we are thankful this morning for the opportunity to come together as the bride of Jesus Christ, as the New Testament church, as those who've been sovereignly saved by your good pleasure. And so, Lord, we give praise and honor and glory to you this morning, for you so rightly deserve all that we could uh, think of or give in highest majesty and glory to your name. And Lord, we're grateful for the, the body of believers here, the church, those who you've called to yourselves, Lord, the fellowship that we share and the, the delight that we have to come together uh, is a great blessing from you, and we recognize it as such. Lord, we thank you for your scriptures and how uh, they penetrate our hearts and teach us to love you more and grow us in our faith in Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, we pray that you would bless this time, that you would use your word to continue our understanding and our right thinking towards you, and may it all result in praise to our Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. So this morning, we'll jump back into our study in Daniel, and we'll pick up with Daniel chapter 4, and just as a a quick thought here, um, you know, in in chapters 1, 2, and 3 of Daniel, we've seen the sovereignty of God in the salvation of men, but also that God steps into history and orchestrates his plan according to his will. Um, It's very clear here in Daniel um, that God is the one who is in control. We saw in chapter 1 that God gave Daniel and his companions um, favor with those who were in charge over them, that they were allowed to eat a diet that was different than what King Nebuchadnezzar had commanded. And their reason for doing that was not to defile themselves. They wanted to hold to the Old Testament dietary laws that they had been taught as young men. And so uh, the the officials over them allowed them to do that, and God uh, favored them with good health and good appearance, and then uh, gave them wisdom and knowledge beyond their contemporaries as they studied. And this continued on for three years. So God continued uh, during that time to pour out his blessings on these four men such that at the end of those four, um, uh, three years of training, those four men were elevated above their contemporaries. They were in the king's court. They were favored uh, not only by God, but by Nebuchadnezzar himself by the orchestration of God. Then in chapter 2, we saw God favor them again and give um, them, as Daniel would say, the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had dreamed and the interpretation of it so that Daniel could give to Nebuchadnezzar what God wanted Nebuchadnezzar to understand, and that was what, do the, what does the future hold for the kingdoms of the world? And we saw that that continues all the way through Um, well beyond Jesus Christ, probably a thousand years, maybe 1,400 years uh, beyond Jesus Christ, this prophecy 
that um, Nebuchadnezzar received from God through the mouth and the wisdom of Daniel. And so as a result, Daniel was put as ruler over the province of Babylon, the highest position in the Babylonian kingdom other than Nebuchadnezzar, King Nebuchadnezzar himself. Daniel was <laughs> seated in that position because of God's favor on him. And then in chapter 3, we saw God do the same thing to Daniel's three companions, that as they were thrown into the fiery furnace for not bowing to the uh, idol that Nebuchadnezzar had built, God stepped into the furnace with them, literally, saved them, protected them from the fire, and as they came out, Nebuchadnezzar, again, overwhelmed with what their God could do, um, actually made a command that anybody who spoke against the God of these three men, and clearly the same God as Daniel had worshipped, that they would be killed. And so here's Nebuchadnezzar, an idol-worshipping uh, pagan, giving an order that anybody who speaks against the one true God will be killed and his house will be made of rubbish. And so at the end of that command, he then elevates again those three men, gives them honor, and it says gives them riches. So they were already the administrators of the province of Babylon underneath Daniel. And so Nebuchadnezzar just elevated them more and gave them the same type of riches that he had given to Daniel. So here you have these four men who are number two and then number three, the three of them, in control of the kingdom of Babylon. <laughs> Crazy thing to think about. In the 6th century B.C., with a pagan leader and then these four men who are faithful to God orchestrating his whole kingdom underneath him by the ordinance and by the direct intervention of God into the kingdom of Babylon. And so for some reason, we think that God can't continue to do that today. But I see that nowhere in the scriptures that he just turned it loose after Babylon um, and lets it go. I think God continues to intervene, to step in, to orchestrate in the world today. Although most of the world, even those who believe, don't recognize it as such. But God is still working his plan toward his ultimate um, establishment of his kingdom on this earth. And we saw that clearly in, in Ezekiel. And here in Daniel, we see the beginning stages as God has laid out what's going to happen in history and now <clears throat> is orchestrating in the kingdom of Babylon what he desires to happen. And so what we'll see in chapter 4 I believe is God stepping in again into the life of Nebuchadnezzar to humble Nebuchadnezzar that God might call him to himself, that Nebuchadnezzar might receive true faith. Um, I believe that's what happens in chapter 4. Uh, I think it's pretty clear, although it's hard for us to understand how God could do this to a pagan man who had destroyed Jerusalem had destroyed most of the kingdoms of the world that existed during his time. God's hand, um, God said he was, uh, Nebuchadnezzar was his instrument 
in doing all of this judgment. And so here, I believe because Nebuchadnezzar had somewhat had done what God told him to do, and because God desired, he calls him to himself. <clears throat> and he does that by humbling him. And so we'll see that, I think, in pretty clear um, explanation as we go through chapter 4. And, um, you know, there are people who would debate with me that Nebuchadnezzar was not a saved man at the end of this chapter, and I'm fine with that. Um, I think he says the things that indicate, and he does the things that indicate um, that he was truly saved uh, during this chapter. So um, we can talk about that as we go through, um, because again, there are people who would say that that's not possible, um, that he was a saved man. But um, I think this is, uh, we don't know exactly when this chapter occurs in the life of Nebuchadnezzar or in the kingdom of Babylon. <clears throat> we do know that chapter 5, um, Nebuchadnezzar is no longer around, that his son Belshazzar is king, and so this is the last we know of Nebuchadnezzar through the scriptures. So I think it's late in his life. Um, after he had invaded and destroyed Egypt, um, which was a few years after he destroyed Jerusalem, um, so he's now back at home, and um, we get a picture of what happens in his life. So we know it's at least seven to ten years before he dies, because this, I believe this chapter takes seven years to unfold. Um, so we'll, and again, that's debatable. There are people who would disagree with me about that, and um, again, I'm fine with that because I have my reasons, and I'll give them to you is why I think this chapter lasts for seven years. Um, so let's just kind of dive into it, and we'll walk through as many of the verses as we can this morning. So beginning in Daniel chapter 4 and verse 1, <clears throat> there the scripture reads, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of all the peoples, nations, and men of every language that live in all the earth, may your peace abound. It has seemed good to me to declare the signs and wonders which the Most High God has done for me. How great are his step sights, and how mighty are his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion is from generation to generation. Okay, so here's the pagan king, right? Coming and declaring to the whole earth, really. <clears throat> he says um, to all peoples, nations, and men of every language. So there's nobody who's excluded in this proclamation. And this, this chapter is unique because this chapter is Nebuchadnezzar telling the story. <clears throat> this is a proclamation, the whole chapter is a proclamation that Nebuchadnezzar makes to his entire kingdom. And at this time in the history of men, Nebuchadnezzar basically was the only one in power. Uh, he had defeated all the nations of the earth um, and so whether he controlled them directly or indirectly as vassal kings and that type of thing, he still was the one who was sovereign really over the whole known world at this time in the kingdom of Babylon. 
And so he speaks to everybody this proclamation. And notice what he says. I mean, these are the words of a pagan man. How um, it has seemed good to me to declare the signs and wonders which the Most High has done for me. Now, this is very different than what Nebuchadnezzar has been saying previously. Um, And we can take a look at that. That you'll remember that as Daniel came and gave him not only the interpretation of his dream, but the very dream itself, that at the end of that, over in chapter 2 and verses 46 and 47, look at what Nebuchadnezzar says. After Daniel has revealed the future and revealed what Nebuchadnezzar's dream was, verse 46 of chapter 2, then King Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face and did homage to Daniel and gave orders to present to him an offering and fragrant incense. The king answered Daniel and said, Surely your God is a God of gods and a Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries since you have been able to reveal this mystery. And notice what he says. He says, Daniel, your God is a God of gods. So recognizing this is Daniel's God, not Nebuchadnezzar's God. And then at the end of chapter 3, when the three men have been saved out of the furnace, and Nebuchadnezzar is amazed and startled again by the works of God, down in chapter 3 and verse 28. Look at what he says to these three men. Nebuchadnezzar responded and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants, who put their true trust in him, violating the king's command, and yielded up their bodies so as not to serve or worship any god except their own god. So again, not the god of Nebuchadnezzar, the god of these three men. And so very clear that Nebuchadnezzar understood there's a god who's not my god, but he's these guys God and then this is where he declares anybody who speaks against that God will be killed be torn limb from limb and his house will be made of rubbish and so Nebuchadnezzar recognizing there's this God who I don't know who belongs to these four men but then look in chapter 4 and now he says at the end of verse 2 which the most high God has done, not for them, but for me. So totally different. Nebuchadnezzar says God has done what he does in this chapter, not for anybody, but for me. So there's something different here. Very different in Nebuchadnezzar. And, And then he says God's kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion is from generation to generation, meaning after I, Nebuchadnezzar, am gone, God's kingdom goes on and will last even though I won't. So Nebuchadnezzar is um, 
speaking words that he previously could not speak in this chapter. Now this praise of God, we'll get there in a week or two, continues at the end of the chapter where Nebuchadnezzar picks back up in the same vein of praising God. So he does it at the beginning as he begins his proclamation and he does it at the end as he finishes his proclamation. <clears throat> and the proclamation in between those two is all about what God did to and for him so that he might have this recognition that he now has. And so here you have a guy who is a pagan king, worshiped multiple idols, worshiped multiple gods, and yet here he's recognizing the Most High God has done specific things for me. Now that would be the testimony of a true believer today, right? That you wouldn't say there's this God who has saved other people and I see it in their lives and he's evidenced um, himself in the lives of people around me. But if you don't have a personal encounter with God and the ability to say the same thing that Daniel, I mean that Nebuchadnezzar says here that God has done things for me personally, <clears throat> then you may not be part of the kingdom of God, but if you do have that testimony that God has done things and wrought things in my life for me personally, then you're part of this kingdom that Nebuchadnezzar recognizes. And so not, Nebuchadnezzar isn't just using haphazard words here. And Daniel didn't just write things that he hoped Nebuchadnezzar would write. And I think we'll see it here in this chapter. There's this intimate relationship between Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar. Um, <clears throat> even while he was a pagan king. But now even more so that he recognizes who the one true God is. So we'll just... There, this chapter is different <clears throat> than what we've seen Nebuchadnezzar like in the past. <clears throat> and it's in his own words here that he recognizes it. And he, so he's given praise to God not because of the miracles he can, <clears throat> he can wrought in other people's lives, such as Daniel giving him the interpretation of his dream or in saving the three men out of the fiery furnace, but in what he's done for me. So it's personal. And then the praise is personal that Nebuchadnezzar gives to God. So and calls him the most high God. I think there's some other evidences in here that show us that Nebuchadnezzar is saved. So let's just continue to read and we'll see those come out of the passage. <clears throat> Verse 4. So Nebuchadnezzar is telling what happened at least seven years ago, I believe. He's recounting what has happened. He's making this proclamation after <clears throat> it has taken place. Okay, so you need to get the, the right perspective of what he's saying here. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and flourishing in my palace. I saw a dream and it made me fearful. And these fantasies as I lay on my bed and the visions in my mind kept alarming me. 
So I gave orders to bring into my presence all the wise men of Babylon, that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Then the magicians, the, conquer the conjurers, the Chaldeans, and the diviners came in, and I related the dream to them, but they could not make its interpretation known to me. <clears throat> but finally Daniel came in before me, whose name is Belshazzar, as according to the name of my God, and in whom a spirit of the gods, of the holy gods, and I related the dream to him, saying, O Belshazzar, chief of the mag magicians, since I know that a spirit of the holy gods is in you, and no mystery baffles you, tell me the visions of my dream, which I have seen along with its interpretations. So <clears throat> here's Nebuchadnezzar telling us what happened previously. He's reflecting back on what happened at the beginning of this, when he had these visions. And so he's laying around in his palace, just uh, kind of gloating. You know, it says that um, I was at ease and uh, things were going my way. I was flourishing in my house. And so he had conquered all his enemies and things were just good for Nebuchadnezzar. <clears throat> and said, yet God specifically steps in and gives Nebuchadnezzar these dreams and these fantasies that alarm him and disturb him, um, just like the previous dream had done back in chapter 2. And so he's quite concerned about what this vision means. And so different than the previous time, but in some ways similar, he calls in these, <laughs> these second-class vision interpreters, right? He calls in the magicians and the conjurers and the Chaldeans and all the wise men of his kingdom, except for the one guy who can actually interpret the dream. And so he gives these guys who failed miserably previously a second chance. And um, they are unable to interpret his dream. He even tells them what the dream is. He gives them the specific details of the dream, and they still have no clue as to what it means. And so they're unable to interpret it. Um, so, and, and Nebuchadnezzar is kinder this time than he was the first time, right? And the first time that we saw him in chapter two, tell me my dream and tell me what it means or I'll tear you limb from limb and make your houses a rubbish heap. And this time he says, here's what I dreamed, um, give me the interpretation of it and they're still unable to do so. And so, um, don't know exactly why he gives them a second chance, don't know why he doesn't call Daniel. It has been, presumably, many years since Daniel gave him that first interpretation. <clears throat> so there's a good bit of time that passes between chapters three and four, because this is late in Nebuchadnezzar's life. Um, so, um, he brings in Daniel, and note, this is very interesting to me. Notice that he says in verse 8, but finally Daniel came in before me, 
whose name is Belteshazzar, according to the name of my God. <clears throat> All right, now Daniel, his name in Hebrew means, uh, I've got it written down here, so I want to get it right. God is my judge. <clears throat> his name in the Chaldean name of Belteshazzar means Bel protect the king. Now Bel was the primary god of the city of Babylon. He's obviously a false god. His name in other religions that have dwelt in the Mesopotamia, maybe you know this name a little better, has been um, Murdoch is what other languages use to describe him. And you can go and do research and you'll find a lot <clears throat> on either Bell of the Babylonians or Murdoch of other people. And well-known God in the writings and the records of these days. And so Daniel's name in the Chaldean language meant Bell protect the king meaning Nebuchadnezzar. And so the question I have that comes to my mind is why does Nebuchadnezzar now call him Daniel, <clears throat> whose name was Belteshazzar, according to my God? Well, I think there's a couple of reasons. He calls him Belteshazzar so there would be no question to the Chaldeans about his identity. Who did this? Because he's not known as Daniel in the land of the Chaldeans. He's known as Belteshazzar. They changed his name. Remember, this was part of the brainwashing. We'll change your language. We'll change your name. We'll train you in the literature and the teachings of our land. We'll teach you to observe our gods. We'll teach you to eat our diet and drink the best wine, and it's part of the brainwashing process. And Nebuchadnezzar now realizes that never took <clears throat> with these four men, especially with Daniel. So he calls him Belteshazzar so that the Chaldeans and all those magicians and conjurers and all those people will know who he's talking about. But he calls him Daniel because that was the name he had when he had his worship of the one true God. So Nebuchadnezzar has given up on calling him Belteshazzar. So again, there's a change in Nebuchadnezzar and he calls him by his Hebrew name. and calls him Daniel. So this is subtle. You never would really think about it much, but as I read through this passage, it just struck me, why in the world is Nebuchadnezzar calling Daniel by his name, Daniel? And I think that's why we know him as Daniel and not Belteshazzar, because that was his name given in his Hebrew heritage. So and here we have Nebuchadnezzar recognizing that, and that that name is significant and it means something. And everybody now knows who he's talking about. Those who knew him as Daniel and those who knew him as Belteshazzar, they all now know that we're talking about the same guy. And so 
Nebuchadnezzar identifies him with both names. And um, it's interesting that here, remember he's recounting what he said at the beginning. So at the beginning of what happens here, he says that Bel is still my God. Because he says, who is called Belteshazzar according to my God. So that was at the beginning. He's recounting what happened. So we'll continue on and we'll see more of what, um, well, there's one other thing here. <clears throat> and I owe my thoughts here about this to, um, to John MacArthur, who has a pretty interesting take on this. You notice that Nebuchadnezzar says, he says it multiple times, but um, <clears throat> talking about Daniel, in whom a spirit of the holy gods, in whom is a spirit of the holy gods. And he says it multiple times through this passage. And <clears throat> MacArthur, MacArthur says, that he thinks that's probably a bad interpretation. That here, what Nebuchadnezzar was actually indicating <clears throat> was the spirit of the one true God, meaning the Holy Spirit. And his reasoning for that is nowhere in Chaldean history, nowhere in the multiple gods in the, um, that we study about, was there any thought that the spirit of one of those gods was in a man, and especially the thought that it would be a holy spirit <clears throat> because their gods were anything but holy. As a matter of fact, they often were depicted as playing tricks and doing evil on people and places. And so they weren't holy by any means. And so when Nebuchadnezzar comes here and he says, in whom dwells the spirit of the holy gods, he's not talking about his multiple gods. He's talking about the spirit of the one true God who makes him able to interpret my dreams. So I think it's probably a pretty good thought because, I mean, if you study and you go back and you look, <clears throat> the people who believe in all those gods of the mythology of the um, Greeks and the Romans did not consider those gods to be good gods. They considered them to be tricksters and at times to be evil. And never, never would they indwell human beings. That would be way below what they would do. So um, I think here we get a glimpse of what Nebuchadnezzar has as an understanding, even as he recounts, here, because he's been changed, he recognizes that Daniel has the spirit of the living God within him. Yeah, the word holy, because their gods weren't holy. Right, and if, yeah, and, and this, whatever is within Daniel is separate and distinct from the gods that we worship. 
because they're not like this. <clears throat> so I think it's probably a pretty good thought that never in the mind of Nebuchadnezzar would he have thought his gods to be holy. But he knew that the God of Daniel was. And here he knows it personally. So that's what, <clears throat> after thinking about it and looking, studying this passage, I think that's what he's referring to. He's referring to the Holy Spirit that indwelled or enabled Daniel to do what he did. So um, I think that's probably the right way to think about this. All right, trying to just kind of wrap up this morning. Let's read on down beginning in verse 10. And Nebuchadnezzar relates his vision. <clears throat> and he's giving it to Daniel. So he's recounting what he said to Daniel. Verse 10. Now these were the visions in my mind as I lay on my bed. I was looking and behold there was a tree in the midst of the earth and its height was great. The tree grew large and became strong and its height reached to the sky and it was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its foliage was beautiful and its fruit abundant and it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it and the birds of the sky dwelt in its branches and all living creatures fed themselves from it. I was looking in the visions in my mind as I lay on my bed, and behold, an angelic watch, watcher, a holy one, descended from heaven. He shouted out and spoke as follows, Chop down the tree and cut off its branches. Strip off its foliage and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts from, flee from under it and the birds from its branches. Yet leave the stump with its roots in the ground, but with a band of iron and bronze around it in the new grass of the field, and let him be drenched with the dew of heaven, and let him share with the beasts in the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from that of a man, and, and let a beast's mind be given to him, and let seven periods of time pass over him. This sentence is by the decree of the angelic watchers, and the decision is a command of the holy ones, in order that the living may know that the Most High God, Most High, is ruler over the realm of mankind, and bestows it on whom he wishes, and sets over it the lowliness of men. This is the dream which I, King Nebuchadnezzar, have seen. Now you, Belteshazzar, tell me the interpretation, inasmuch as none of the wise men of my kingdom is able to make it known to me, make known to me the interpretation. But you are able, for a spirit of the holy gods is in you. So here's Nebuchadnezzar <coughs> relating to Daniel the same thing that he had told all the other wise men what his dream was all about. And it's about a tree who covers the whole earth and all the earth, all people, all beasts, all birds, get their nourishment from the tree. So um, we'll, we'll pick up next week in verse 19 you'll notice Daniel's reaction when he hears this dream. He immediately 
knows what it means. Then Daniel in verse 19, whose name is Belteshazzar, was appalled for a while as his thoughts alarmed him. The king responded and said, Belteshazzar, do not let the dream or its interpretation alarm you. Belteshazzar, my Lord, if only the dream applied to those who hate you and its interpretation to your adversaries. <clears throat> but Daniel knows that's not true. It applies to Nebuchadnezzar himself. So you see this alarm in Daniel, the man of the Most High God, <clears throat> in the prediction of God that Nebuchadnezzar is going to be destroyed. And so there's something going on between Nebuchadnezzar and Daniel that we don't fully understand. Because why would it alarm Daniel that Nebuchadnezzar, this evil pagan man who threw his friends into the fiery furnace, is going, that this interpretation is about him? Why would that alarm him? I mean, this man is evil. And so there's this relationship between Daniel and Belteshazzar that God uses through the years to ultimately call Nebuchadnezzar to, um, between Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar to ultimately call Nebuchadnezzar to himself. So we'll look at that next week and what Daniel's interpretation is, talk a little bit more about this dream because this angel says a lot. He says several things in here that we want to pick apart um, and look at in more detail. So that's where we'll pick up next week. Thanks for your time.